Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Lighthouse Infrastructure. As such, the sponsor may suggest topics for discussion, but the final control remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Peter Johnston, who is the Managing Director of Lighthouse Infrastructure, a sustainable infrastructure and real asset fund management company that more recently has been investing in affordable housing for key workers. Peter? Welcome to the show. Hi, Walter. Nice to be here. So how did you get involved in infrastructure and um, infrastructure investing? Well, I studied uh, economics and accounting uh, at university. And shortly thereafter, I my first job was working for a utility business. And during that process, very quickly, that went into uh, supporting that business through the establishment of the regulatory framework uh, in Victoria. I was lucky enough to be right at the table with the regulators while they were establishing the framework and struck me it was a lot like a puzzle and I have a lot of interest in puzzles. Uh, (laughs) So that drew me in to start with. Shortly after that, the industry started to rapidly expand in Australia with privatisation and with that, a lot of really smart people came into the sector and I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with them uh, to learn, to grow. Um, and, you know, from there, that's uh, led to the funds management industry, which has now established itself from a very, very small back in the 90s um, to a very substantial and significant asset class for institutional investors. So it's intrigued me for a long time. Uh, it's kept me interested and, uh, as I say, really smart people to work with. Yeah. I think uh, within Lighthouse, um, there's, there's different approaches, uh, different strategies, but today we're going to focus predominantly on affordable housing for key workers. But before we get there, can you tell me a little bit about how Lighthouse got started itself? Um, I think the history goes back to, to 2007. Yeah, correct, Walter. Um, my partner, Mitch King, established the business in 2007, uh, coming out of Hastings, one of the, the leading infrastructure firms there. He established the business as a, a platform for other innovative and bright investment managers to come on and to innovate, to grow and create sustainable outcomes. First 10 years were mainly focused on advisory work, uh, work in the renewable sector, also in a lot of uh, social infrastructure uh, and some transport as well. Uh, In 2016, I joined. Um, We started investing capital there. And we established what was innovative at the time was a a first large-scale PV solar investment fund. 
Shortly thereafter, we were able to innovate again. Um, we were one of the first investors into specialist disability accommodation. And, and now it's uh, onto affordable housing. How did you get involved in affordable housing? Because if you look at it sort of from the institutional investor perspective, I think residential property is only just starting to sort of become interesting. This is quite sort of a specialized uh, version of that. How, how do you get involved in that? Well, it started rather in, in 2018 when we started investing in specialist disability accommodation. Uh, we were drawn to that because of its regulatory framework, which was very similar to what we'd experienced in gas and electricity, transportation and utilities. What we discovered there was a dominance of the operators was the community housing sector. For those who don't know uh, much about the community housing sector, um, in Australia, they operate about 25% of our social housing on behalf of government. They also provide their own affordable housing using their own balance sheets uh, in many circumstances as well. I think they operate about 125,000 homes across the country. Some are utility scale, as we would call it, uh, operating thousands of properties. And working with them, we were able to create innovation in the SDA space, which uh, gave them a, a growth that they hadn't been able to achieve before. Um, with that innovation, that led to them engaging with us heavily around their other problems. And their other problems, obviously, are affordable and social housing. Um, we quickly from there zeroed in on the affordable housing sector as an area that we thought this could be something successful. So in this podcast, we will focus on the investment side of, of things, but perhaps to just quickly paint a picture of the housing problem for key uh, workers, can you tell us at sort of a high level how big this problem is in Australia? Yeah, well, identifying who the, the key workers are is probably the first part. Imagine those people who during COVID, uh, we couldn't afford to have sitting at home on Zoom calls. They actually have to provide their services. So think you know, healthcare sector workers, uh, emergency services. We also do, you know, focus on the education sector as well. Many of these workers are essentially subject to enterprise bargaining agreements and, and they cap their incomes uh, and constrain their incomes. Um, however, at the same time, we want them to be providing their services to us. So they operate you know, centrally and in large cities, that's where most of us live and most of us want to live. Uh, and in that context, access to accommodation in a highly competitive uh, market for accommodation is challenging. So they're dealing with and competing with everybody while uh, on those constrained incomes. Therefore, they either have to pay a lot of their um, income away in rent or travel long distances. So it's a specific challenge that they face, looking at how bad this problem is today. Uh, when it focuses on key workers, a, a recently published report by Everybody's Home, sponsored by Anglicare, identified that in this country, uh, key workers are paying away a minimum of 50% of their income in rent. To expand on that slightly further, they also identified that only about uh, somebody who was on uh, the minimum wage could afford to access 2% of the rental stock in Australia. So it's got to a crisis point and uh, something needs to be done. Yeah. And when we talk about key workers, is that mainly nurses and police officers or what is sort of who falls under that category? 
Well, we've expanded that to include uh, anyone working within the health sector. Usually they are required to work within a hospital. So that can be cleaners, that also cooks, um, hospital administrators as well. Um, when we expanded a bit further and we're talking about um, an area we're looking at closely now is essential retail. We do require people to you know, provide us uh, essential food goods um, as well. So it is a, it's a broader sector than just your nurses and police. So that gives you a bit of a feel for it. Yeah. Your first investment was made in 2021. Can you tell us a little bit what type of investment that was and how it sort of helped solving this problem of affordable housing? Yeah, the first investment, I suppose we, we closed on our first investment in 2021. The journey goes back to around 2018-19 when we started working on this challenge and we identified St George Community Housing or SGCH as a, a really high quality partner. Uh, they have an exceptional management uh, team and, and board who embrace innovation. So we started working with them. We also collaborated with uh, some of the leading law firms in CORS and uh, HSF in this sector to design the model, to test it, uh, to make sure it was robust and also brought in KPMG. Uh, when we were ready, we then looked to go and apply that to product. We ended up you know, getting very attracted to a site right beside Westmead Hospital. For those who know Sydney um, or don't know Sydney as the case may be, Westmead is one of the largest health precincts in the Southern Hemisphere, as I understand it, involves a number of hospital campuses, education facilities, uh, and a rapidly expanding growth area. This particular project uh, is about 400 metres from the front door of Westmead Hospital, built to sell uh, by a private developer. Uh, we were able to access about 15% of their stock uh, for our project, converted essentially into key worker housing, and that represents about 85 apartments. We were able to let that up very quickly, even during the Omicron phase, which was going on at the time, it took about six weeks to fully tenant that. And what we have now is key workers who are saving between six and $10,000 essentially after tax in their rent. And a huge change, the, the story we hear back from the tenants, just a huge change in uh, their life and their capacity to be able to commit to their work, which is, I think, one of the things we need to identify from an essential worker's perspective is their value to the community and how do we make their employment more attractive. Since then, we've closed another investment in 2022. Okay. So what, what is sort of the arrangement with the essential workers? Do they get to rent it forever? Is there a set period? Um, how do you uh, structure that? First, there's an eligibility criteria for the tenant. Um, they need to be on low to moderate incomes. So uh, we can't, uh, we're not able to let these to people on, on much higher incomes. So it's focused based on need. Um, they are able to access that property um, while their incomes remain at that level. Um, so we do provide a degree of continuity, but you know circumstances change and, and people's incomes increase and sometimes they move place of employment. So there is a degree of sort of turnover uh, that occurs naturally within the tenancies and the experience SGCH has been is uh, less than three years is the average tenancy. So we're able to provide that. Um, as, it as it relates to the investor and to our relationship with SGCH, we're committing to a 10-year period that we'll be able to do that. 
So they will be able to let these to people who are qualifying for the next 10 years. After that period, St George has the opportunity to buy that from us or uh, we can use that to, to sell to market. Um, we are investigating together with St George now the capacity for those key workers to purchase that accommodation. So at this stage it goes for 10 years, um, there's capacity to potentially expand that over time. Yeah. Why was that 10-year period chosen? Um, is that also that maybe these workers that start out on, on low to moderate incomes then are further in their career or is that more an, an investment decision? I suppose it's over. It's more about overall balance. Um, when we set out to uh, create this model, we're focused very much on trying to develop something that was attractive to an institutional investor. And with that institutional investor in mind, uh, the creation of an investment opportunity that has a compelling return was really, really important. Uh, we've created a model together with St George here that produces that sort of compelling return, but it's unable to do it at this stage forever. So it has that constraint, the subsidy that we're able to create and the extra return that we can generate runs out. Um, so after that period, uh, St George might be able to repurpose that into another government program, but that's what it suits uh, for our model at this time. So affordable housing, you, you also mentioned earlier on there some solar strategies involved as well. Um, Obviously, a strong focus on sustainable and, and um, also doing good, basically. Is that a bit of a personal interest? Because you started off with sort of the regulatory background as to um, how Lighthouse got started. But do you have sort of a, a personal angle to this? I think all of us searching for the capacity to be able to contribute to our community, to be able to do that in a professional context is very rewarding for me. And, you know, for Mitch, who founded the firm, this is the, the establishment of the framework and what our value proposition is to investors and purpose. Doing, at the same time, it's the same value proposition that we offer to employees, the ability to contribute to your community and do well professionally and earn, uh, you know, an appropriate income from doing that. So it resonates. It's very compelling. Yeah. Now, sometimes there's been a discussion in, in sort of sustainable and socially aware strategies around does it actually pay off enough? So if we look at sort of that, that question, and I uh, used an example of Australian Super because they have been on the record on this, that they said in this category, of which basically falls on the residential property, they're looking for a return of at least 6 to 11%. In this type of strategy where you you offer uh, basically housing at a discount. Is that sort of an achievable level? Short answer is yes. Um, I, I, we all thank Paul Schroeder for those comments. Often quoted they will be by those who are working in the affordable housing space and, and surrounds. That's the absolute need. So when we set out, set out to create this model, creating I suppose not just a market return, but a compelling return we saw as necessary to attract investors and to make it sustainable. Um, without that, you're dependent upon government programs and other stimulus, which we think is a challenge for institutional investors to rely upon. So our model is deliberately focused on creating an attractive return and that attractive return sustaining the outcome that it produces. So 6 to 11%, you're very comfortably within that bound. To what degree does that rely also on subsidies coming from the government? Is that purely 
your own activity or does is there a, a subsidy element to this? There is uh, definitely a subsidy to it. Working with the community housing sector enables the community housing provider uh, to generate a subsidy to sustain the, the investor in this. Um, we are discounting rent. We are foregoing income. Uh, any investor uh, is going to need a supplement to be able to sustain that. We are using, I suppose, indirect subsidies at this stage, which is not dependent upon a government program. We think that's really important. When you look more broadly at the sector, um, there was a really uh, important review done of the National Housing Finance and Infrastructure Investment Corporation, NIFIC, by uh, Chris Leptos. It identified the challenge that's ahead and the challenge ahead for social and affordable housing is we need about $110 billion over the next 20 years for affordable housing and about $180 billion for social housing. The subsidies required for those two are stark in their contrast. It's about 100% capital subsidy required for social housing. To make affordable housing work for the long term, noting we're only going for 10 years, you probably only need about a 10% capital subsidy. That means about 90% of that capital represents an opportunity for institutional investment to participate in this sector. That's what we saw as attractive, that's what we saw as scalable, and that's what we saw as appropriate for institutional investors. Yeah. So this this area can be scaled up. Uh, there is obviously a lot of need there. How do you sort of from your perspective make this scalable in, in, in terms of um, the vehicles that funds can invest in? The scalability comes down to, uh, well, firstly, we've identified that there is a, a, a sizable market demand, which is important, I think, at the outset. When we started to look at how to scale this model, the production of that volume of housing uh, and as an injection, we identified as unlikely to be successful if it competes with market housing. It's most likely to be successful if it is supportive of producing market housing. So our model really works within that private developer world and supporting private developers to be able to produce affordable housing uh, rather than demanding that of them. So I think one of the key ingredients that's been missing from this sector has been access to capital. I don't think there's any, from our engagement with developers, there's been very little unwillingness to, to want to participate in this sort of program and the developers that we've dealt with to date um, have wanted to do more, which obviously gives you an indication that it's being successful for them. By working with and collaboratively with the private development world, we're not competing for access to land. And I think that is vital if we're going to solve the mountain of problem that is affordability. We need to essentially co-produce affordable housing and market housing. We need both. So trying to have a separate channel and a separate competing capital market for the access to that land and development, we think is unlikely to produce a successful economic outcome. We'll also need to have scaled operators and the community housing sector today are the largest build to rent or landlords that exist in our country uh, many of them very professional organisations and capable of partnering with institutional investment. So that operational capability already being on our doorstep, we saw as a huge advantage in being able to apply this. So 
being able to work with private developers, being able to work with um, the community housing sector, we think these two ingredients are vital in creating scaled solutions. Yep. Now, there's obviously an element involved with the government, with regulations, uh, with how to define this. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about how you manage risk in this perspective and is there a higher sort of regulatory risk in this space? The regulatory risk that exists um, is the same uh, essentially regulatory framework that operates for community housing providers today. So everything that we're working with and using within this model is being utilised right across that sector. Um, Our engagement in developing this model, Federal Treasury has been fantastic in their um, their interactions with us. And we've been very transparent about it. I think that stability of regulation is is also a, it's a vital ingredient, and being able to engage with them around the outcomes that we're producing. At the end of the day, we are reducing the burden on the public sector to be able to produce goods for the community, and that is uh, of itself also a great protection combined with existing statutes. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier the the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation. I think it has been renamed Housing Australia recently. They have played sort of a pivotal role in making this uh, more attractive to institutional investors. What do you see as their role going forward uh, in in helping this build out the sector for institutional investors? I think the guys at uh, at NIFIC have done a fantastic job in developing the sophistication within the community housing sector. So NIFIC's role to date has been to create and support and expand the community housing sector. They've done that through uh, a housing bond aggregator program and in doing so, qualifying for that program has required a degree of reporting and sophistication that may not have existed in the community housing sector before. The legacy of that we are inheriting, which is, and I mean that not lighthouse, I mean that the broad investment community so their sophistication and understanding around reporting now is at a level that didn't exist before. The role is about to change significantly, essentially to be a, a subsidy provider for a number of projects. It would appear with the Housing Australia Future Fund. They run and have a, quite a difficult balance within their mandate and their objectives, I should say, is to stimulate private sector investment. The challenge for us and the challenge for many institutional investors is any program is going to come to an end uh, and therefore may not be sustainable. Their challenge is going to be over the next few years is how do they catalyse so as an industry can sustain itself rather than necessarily rely on NIFIC. That's where we think programs like ours, which don't require NIFIC support, don't require government support, you know, we can assist in growing that and expanding it and therefore enabling them to focus on more maybe challenging opportunities. Yeah. Most of our uh, listeners come from a a pension fund superannuation sort of background. And so they look at investments in in the context of a broad multi-asset portfolio. If we sort of go back to basics on this type of investment, where does it sit? Is it actually a property investing investment or is it a sustainable investment? Really good question, Rada. The The reality is it's a mix. Uh, in terms of underlying investment risk, it is definitely property at the core. What we're supplementing it with is an income stream 
that looks very much like a public-private partnership. So very much synonymous with our world of infrastructure investing. Um, so we've ended up, I suppose, with a hybrid, which is a property investment that's supported uh, by an infrastructure-like investment. That combination, we think, produces an outsized return. And the trade for that is committing uh, for investors to commit for a period of time to be able to support the community and enabling to use that asset. That combination is commonly used in the infrastructure world, and that is when developing PPPs and other type assets that don't necessarily produce in some cases any income like court facilities and the like. Time is what essentially the community needs and in their return for time is uh, a compensatory income stream uh, that comes back to the sector. Whether this is a sustainable investment, we don't necessarily think that sustainability in a social context can be done without profit. Um, so focusing on this again as an institutional investment outcome, profit will sustain it, but it does produce a social dividend. And that we think is the important combination and in that order, particularly for institutional investors that have to be guided by the best returns available. So the key characteristics are property related. So if we sort of look within that context, I think we, we've all known sort of the, the uh, problems we've seen in other areas of property with especially the retail side, which has been challenged by e-commerce office more recently by working from home and changing workplace. So it seems that this has created more interest in residential property itself as well. Do you think that that's sort of helped drive the interest in this space as well? Or how do you see that developing going forward? I think the challenges within asset allocations are omnipresent is probably the best way to describe it. I think every industry and every asset class is, faces different challenges from different times. Um, the offering that we have here today is for an Australian investor and actually for an international investor is not unique, but it's new. We are offering the institutional world build to rent as a model in a um, definitely a private market, market rental uh, type context. This is another opportunity um, which could also exist alongside that. Uh, how investors would seek uh, to use that, we're really conscious of the your future, your super benchmarks, which a number all superannuation funds in Australia are subject to, and this undoubtedly we think will fall into that property allocation. So we're focused on, I think, not just where returns are projected to be from property today, but where they are historically been as norms, and our objective is to produce a return that will compete against those outcomes. Why is there a lot of interest in the space? I think there's investment challenges, but I think there's also national challenges and there are international challenges associated with housing affordability. So I think there's an investment need, there's a social need, it's got a lot of attention, but what will sustain it is attractive returns as the only thing that will ever keep it alive. Yeah. That element that you mentioned before where there is an, uh, sort of an infrastructure framework around it, does that help as well with getting more uh, sticky and more stable income? It does. It enhances the income. It elevates the income above market rent, which we think is a really a necessary element for residential housing as well. 
in a context at a retail level, banks are very comfortable lending to individuals um, who are prepared to provide access to their separate source of income for service. When they're doing so, they're really comfortable with going to very high loan-to-valuation ratios. One of the challenges associated with institutional investment has been, is rent alone enough to sustain a debt position? So not only were we faced with the challenge of only starting with that market-based income, um, but we were starting behind, which actually we were providing discounted income. So we saw that as one of the most important challenges that we needed to face was actually to make this sustainable. It needed to be attractive to lenders as well as to equity investors. And that's been you know, a, a hallmark of the property sector's use within an allocation is to produce income. So our subsidy that we are achieving through this model is being provided in income that will sustain equity investors. It will enhance the income stream that's achieved, which will enhance the cover ratios that lenders can also achieve and therefore be able to sustain higher loan-to-valuation ratios and therefore drive returns harder uh, as a consequence as well. Yeah. So you've made, I think, two investments you said under this uh, particular uh, strategy. What is sort of the ideal investment? What does it look like? Uh, you mentioned, for instance, it's important that it's close to a hospital if it's for uh, uh, that particular key worker. What does the ideal investment look like in this space? The ideal investment is one that can be repeated. And that's, I think, what we have uh, been able to do to date. So I think the problem is unlikely to be the ideal project. It's just repeatable projects because this problem is right across the country. It's not in a particular location. It's not within a particular uh, locality. Uh, it's not actually within a particular sector because we do operate almost completely with a fully competitive market. Um, the challenge we have is if we don't address it, how are we going to solve it? You look at our key worker satisfaction measures today and I think everyone within the global community is concerned about what we've done to healthcare workers but it's also been emergency services workers who've also been facing enormous challenges. They can work in other places, they can work in other industries. We need to um, sustain our community by supporting them as much as we can. Yeah. So if we do a little bit of crystal ball gazing, uh, what are your predictions or your estimates of how this sector will grow as a sector itself, but also what are you trying to achieve with Lighthouse itself? Um, what sort of size fund do you have in mind? I'll start with, I'll, I'll, I'll go back again to remarks I made earlier about Chris Leptos's report where he clearly set out with um, the work that Treasury did with him the affordable housing need is $110 billion. So that's what we actually need to deliver. It can be delivered with private capital. It can be delivered with private capital that can achieve an appropriate return. So I think that's what we want people to understand about the investment opportunity. It is in the tens up to $100 billion just in an Australian context. So to solve our problems, we need to produce that and private sector can play a really important role in doing so. Uh, as it relates to uh, Lighthouse and what we're looking to achieve, we believe um, 
I suppose we're slightly different from others in that we don't believe many models will make it work. But what's probably most important is the generation of a capital market to make it work. And a capital market has uh, a well-understood risk framework. It's repeatable. It is some an area where investors can increase their weight and decrease their weight. And doing so, they can take primary opportunities, invest in new projects, but knowing that there's a market that sits behind them that understands these risks and there will be a secondary market available for them because investors will be able to trade their positions. If you come to that conclusion that that's actually what we need, Lighthouse can play an important role, but there must be other participants. We're looking to establish a platform which will take our $120 million that we've invested to date up to $1 to $2 billion. We've got a pipeline of projects that should be able to achieve that comfortably over the next two years. Um, beyond that, uh, a capital market will need other participants. And I think today super uh, superannuation funds certainly engage with the challenge. They have the capital to be able to produce a solution for this and you know, a good framework around a model like ours to be able to scale that investment up and solve this challenge. Yeah, yeah. Peter, thank you very much for your time. It was uh, much appreciated. Rado, lovely to be here and thanks for the interview. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.